All right, Two Cities Church, here we go. The fall has begun. Now, if you're new, you may ask this question. Uh, tell us a little about this church, you know? You're like, well, why did you come to Winston-Salem? People ask me that question all the time, and the answer isn't just because it's the fifth largest city in the greatest state in the nation. Amen? <laughs> but that aside, that aside for a second. Uh, no, no. Why did we come to Winston-Salem? Well, it was the growth, it was the trajectory, it was the renewal, it was the revitalization of the city, it was the innovation, it was the medical community. But if I can be honest, it was the college students. In fact, here's what's interesting. I always tell you about how like 30 of us moved. If you've been here for a while, you know I tell the story. 30 of us moved from Raleigh-Durham. Guess what the biggest group of that 30 was? Recent college graduates. And so the unique thing about the college campus is, you know, it's, you reach the campus today, you reach the world tomorrow. And our city has six unique universities or colleges. We've got, you know, a Wake Forest, uh, an elite private school. We've got uh, Salem College, a historically all-girls school. We have UNC School of the Arts, a premier art school. Um, you know, we have um, Winston State, a historically black school. Um, we, we, we have what was once a Bible college, PIU, now a Christian university, Carolina University, and we've got some great community colleges, and we really want to reach the college campus. Now, let me just do a quick survey, okay? Uh, if college was for you a time of enormous spiritual growth, raise your hand. Okay, look around. Okay, guys. Uh, that's like 10% of the room. You put your hands on. Uh, I know what it was for the rest of you, okay? <laughs> You're like, oh, no, don't ask me what happened in college. Because nobody stays spiritually neutral in college. It's either a spiritual greenhouse or it's a spiritual wasteland. And what we would ask, we'd ask you if you'd pray with us, because here's what we're trying to do. I mean, we, we, you know, thousands of college students just came back or for the first time came to our city. And no one goes to Wake Forest University thinking, I'm going to become a Christian there. But that's exactly what we're hoping and praying will happen. I, I did 10 years of college ministry, and here's what I know, that uh, the college campus, the first six weeks of school, especially for a freshman, the cement is very wet, but it hardens very quickly. And the decisions that freshmen make in the first six weeks of being in college tend to determine the direction and the quality of the rest of their college experience. So I want the college students to know we want to invest in you. Uh, I'd encourage you to come back. It's hard to get to know our church just one week. Come back over the next few weeks as we finish this series and launch a new series. And we're going to pray for the college students for just a minute, but if we can just take this moment, if you can look around here, okay? The lobby is completely full. Completely. We had to bring chairs. There, there. There's a prayer room back in that corner, and the people on the prayer team are sitting Indian style on the ground, okay? You can't say that anymore. They're sitting crisscross applesauce, okay, whatever it is. Um, they are sitting on the ground in there, guys. For the first time, wave to those in our hallway. Hey, guys. Okay, uh, as it says in the movie Jaws, when they first see Jaws, remember that? They go, oh my, we need a bigger boat. A bigger boat is coming on Patterson Avenue, uh, Lord willing, by December. Uh, for the time being, we do have a Saturday night service. We also have a Sunday night service. Let me just take a moment, pray, and if you're able to move to Saturday or Sunday nights until we get into this new building, it would be a huge blessing. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just take a moment and pray for our college students at all of the different universities who showed up, and we know that the most likely time for someone to come to Christ is in a Christian home for the first 18 years of their life. But the most likely time for someone to give their life to Jesus and get more serious about following Jesus is in those four years as a college student. Lord, it's a unique, it's a unique opportunity to go to college. Only 7% of the world gets to go to college. And so I, I pray for the students here that connect their lives with our church and our college ministry that they would be able to look back 
And uh, 10, 15 years from now, they'd be able to raise their hand in a church and say, yes, for me, college was a time of enormous spiritual growth. It was a spiritual greenhouse. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, listen, is anyone in here, don't raise your hand, but is anyone in here a good test taker? Like, I'm not a good test taker, okay? I mean, you know, but, but here's what you realize, that life is full of tests, right? I mean, you know, you get standardized testing in schools and, you know, you're going to go to college. Most of you will go to college probably. And, and, and so what do you have to do? You have to take the ACT. You have to take the SAT. There's a test at the end. And then you get out and you go, well, thank goodness I'm done with testing. And then you've got to take your MCAT if you're going to go to medical school and the bar exam if you're a lawyer and the series seven if you're in finance and the CPA exam if you're an accountant. It's like it never ends, right? And then if you're going to have any kind of responsibility in the world and you probably want that, then you're going to, well, okay, if you want to drive and have autonomy and have your own vehicle and be able to go where you want, then you have to take a driver's test. Did anyone else fail that the first time? I couldn't parallel park, okay. Figured it out, but anyway. So, uh, so, th- and then, so there's those tests. And then there's always, like, all we do with each other all the time is test each other. I mean, that's what we do, well, you know, subtly, sometimes not so subtly. Remember, remember, parents will say this to their kids often. Do not test me. Because that's exactly what kids will do. They will test you. Uh, this is what parents do to their kids. They'll give them a test. They'll say, hey, hey, by test, I mean I'm going to give you some responsibility and maybe a little bit of opportunity. And if things go well, maybe I'll keep doing this. What is dating but one long test? It's like, do we, are we compatible? Who are you? If I get emotional, how will you act? I mean, all that, all right? We're always testing one another. Well, if you'll turn to type two, Genesis 42, today Joseph tests his brothers. And why does he test them? He tests them. This is the whole idea. If you have to leave early, I know it's crowded in here. If you gotta leave early, here's the whole idea for the whole sermon, the whole passage. Joseph tests his brothers to see if they can be trusted. The reason you are tested is to see if you can be trusted. This is an important message. This will be an important message for you at some point in your life because if you love enough people and if you live long enough, someone's going to break your trust or you're going to break somebody else's trust. And in that moment, you need to remember this. Trust is both given and earned. And what happens is when somebody breaks someone's trust, we wanna tell, we, here's, here's what happens. When someone breaks your trust, they go back to zero. But they don't go to negative 10,000, which is what you'd like to do sometimes. They go back to zero and they can earn their way back. And both have to be true at the same time. They need to earn trust back and you need to give trust and you'll need to navigate, negotiate that together. Well, that's exactly what we see with Joseph. Let's pick up the story. In um, Genesis 42, it says this. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in, uh-oh, there's that word, Egypt. So real quick on the story, it's been seven more years since last week. I know that's kind of weird. Like you read, you turn a page, you read a verse, like it's been seven years, yeah. So I need to catch us up if you don't know this story. Um, Guy named Joseph, his brothers throw him in the pit. He ends up in prison. It's a long story, but then he interprets some dreams for Pharaoh and he gets exalted to number two in the nation. That's what just happened. And part of his dream, he said, guys, there's gonna be seven years of plenty and then there's gonna be seven years of famine and we need to prepare uh, in years of plenty for years of famine. You get all that, okay? So now the famine has begun. What does this mean? This means Joseph is now 37 years old. This means that he's now been away from his family, his brothers, his dad for not 13 years, but 20 years. And, uh, and so what, what happens is the dad finds out, this is Jacob, finds out that there's a famine in Egypt, but look, this is a dysfunctional family. Look at this dysfunctional family. Jacob said to his sons, okay, so there's a problem, and a pretty big problem, a famine, why do you look at one another? So do you want to know if you are in a dysfunctional family? Because most people don't know it. Do you want to know if you are in an un- emotionally unhealthy relationship? There, that's a modern phrase. Here's what you are. You can't talk about anything. You can't trust one another. And that's why problems never get fixed. It's like, 
They're all trying to avoid it. They're all trying to ignore it. Why, why are the brothers looking at one another? Because they don't want to go down to Egypt. You know what? You go, well, why don't they want to go to Egypt? Well, there's practical reasons, so there's personal reasons. The practical reason they don't want to go to Egypt, and by the way, in your life, there's always practical reasons, and those are what you share first. And then if, you're, if you have the courage and the vulnerability, you might share the personal reasons why. The practical reasons why they don't want to go to Egypt is it's far. It's 250 miles. That's a six-week journey. Guys, there's a famine. People do strange and desperate things when they're hungry. And the last thing they want to do is go on a six-week journey. Being Hebrews, going to Egypt, the Egyptians don't really like the Hebrews. It's a dangerous journey. It'll take six weeks, and everybody's hungry. It's like, ah, I'd rather not. But what's the real reason? The real reason is they don't want to go anywhere near Egypt, because if you go back to chapter 37, the last time that the word Egypt was said or they saw somebody heading toward Egypt. It was their brother that they had recently sold into slavery on the back of a camel heading to Egypt. So part of what today we're talking about is what, what happens if you have undealt with, unconfessed sin? Here's what happens. Places and people haunt you. I know a pastor that he was at a church that treated him horribly, and unfortunately this does happen. It was not really so much the, the congregation, it's more the deacons and the leadership, you know how that works. And uh, it was so painful for him, he can't drive by that church anymore. See, what will happen in your life, this is a warning, is if you don't deal with your past, you'll continually be haunted by more places. Oh, that's where I, that's where she, that's where we, that's my ex, this, whatever. It's just like, and if you are haunted by enough places across enough time, it's not going to go well with you. And so what he says is, look what Jacob does. He says, guys, we've got to fix this problem. Okay, so here's what Jacob does. And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. <clears throat> so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. It's like, wait a second. I thought he had 11 brothers. Oh, he does. Look here. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. I think he called him Benji. Okay. He loved little old Benji. But Jacob did not send Benji. Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now why hold Benjamin back? Well, the reason is Benjamin is a living link, and every once in a while you may have a living link in your life. A living link is like the last thing that's still there that connects you to a past that's dead. Benjamin, he was Joseph's brother. Jacob says, well, Joseph's dead functionally to him. And he was Rachel's son and Rachel's dead. And so Benjamin is way more important than he should be because of all he represents. Well, that makes sense. Uh, but when people go different ways, so some people read this and they go, okay, look at, look at Jacob. He's idolizing his son. He's a helicopter dad. Uh, this is not healthy. And that may be true. But I actually think, and this is an important principle on overcoming suffering and loss in your life. So what happens is they say that if there's a memory that you have uh, that happened more than 18, so if something that happened to you more than 18 months ago still makes you cry when you talk about it, it's because you don't understand it. And one of the reasons that you would cry about it is, well, kind of part of you is back there. And the, and the way that you get over that, I can help you with this, if you're, if you're still struggling with that, you have to go, is there anything different I would have done? And sometimes the answer is like, no, I, you know, and you, and you can, okay. But if there's something different you could have done, you need to commit to yourself that next time you'll do it. So I think this is maybe part of Jacob's healing. Okay, I shouldn't have let my favorite son go with the brothers who didn't love him. I commit that I will not let that happen again. 
Okay, that's part of how you can get healthy, part of how you can heal. So anyway, they send the brothers down. You know how this goes. Look what happens. Here it is. Now, Joseph was governor. That's number two in command. Over the land, he was the one who had sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, this was not the George Washington bow. Are you familiar with that? He was a little bit of a germaphobe. The Washington bow. That's not what this was. This was the falling on your face, not making eye contact with Joseph. Now, look what it says. Look at this. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Now, listen. Is it a coincidence? Well, we don't believe in coincidence, so we could just say, well, is it just providential that Joseph ends up being at the right place when his brothers come? Well, no, because the way that this worked was the famine was massive, and so they would have different parts of the country come to different parts of Egypt. It's interesting that Jacob, or sorry, that Joseph wanted to be where the people from Canaan were coming. Here's what I think. I think Joseph has already forgiven his brothers. I think, yeah, that was the hard work he had to do in prison a long time ago, because forgiveness takes one person. I think what he wants to know is, can we be reconciled? Because we read this story, guys, and you know what's, most of you know what's going to happen, so it's not as dramatic to you as it should be. It's like, what do you do with people who have harmed you? You know, like, what, what do people, what, like, okay, so when I, as I think about the story of Joseph, I really think there's three options, okay? Option, and this is, this is with any unhealthy relationship in your life. There are three options. Option number one, if someone, you know, betrays you or sins against you, okay, or hurts or harms you. Option number one is, and we all like this option. We don't want to admit how much we like this option. Revenge. Every Taylor Swift song ever. It's like, there's just something, it's the Count of Monte Cristo, the novel and, and, and the uh, movie, amazing story of just, it's a long story about calculated and slow and measured revenge. Revenge speaks to something deep in us, like something primal, like I will get you back and it will feel so good. Revenge is natural, but not supernatural. The second is to renounce, right? Some of you have done that. Some of you, your families are like that, right? And you kind of, you grow up and you're like, why doesn't Aunt Sally and Aunt Susie ever talk? It's like, well, 20 years ago, honey. It's like, oh, whoa. It's like overwhelming for a kid. A kid didn't, really? Yeah, you, basically someone, you know, does something to you and then you, and this is so easy today if you have any kind of money, you know, at all. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to a different college. I'm going to a different church. Some people, I'm going to a different city. I knew one girl, I'm going to a different country. It's like, okay, you're kind of getting far away, but okay. And we just decide, you're dead to me. I'm gonna avoid you. You know, he could have done that. The third is to be reconciled, right, obviously. And, but you have to ask when you're reconciling somebody, can this person be reconciled? Can I reconcile with this person? Like, you can forgive anybody, the Bible says. You should forgive everybody. But forgiveness takes one person, reconciliation takes two. So in your life, you're gonna have positive relationships. And those relationships are relationships that are a blessing, more of a blessing than a burden. Hopefully that's your marriage, hopefully that's your relationship with the kids, hopefully God gives you like a couple friends like that. That'd be great. Um, most relationships will be neutral. So, so some are positive, most are neutral. And I mean this in a warm way. They're transactional, they're functional. They're a win-win. Uh, they don't do much harm, they don't do much hurt. They're not much of a blessing, not much of a burden. And then every once in a while, you have negative relationships. And they are more of a burden than a blessing. 
And I know you're, this may not sound like something that a pastor would say, but you don't have to keep up, keep putting up with people who are toxic and are hurting you. And you can forgive them and you can move on. Some of you have unchecked compassion. And you keep letting people into your life that you shouldn't. And so what Joseph does is he's going to test them to see if he can trust them. He's already forgiven them, I believe that. So if, if they don't pass the test, he forgives them and he moves on. But what he longs for is not a truce, right? Cease, cease fire and head in different directions. He longs for relationship and reconciliation. Here, I'll show you. Look here. Verse 7 continued. But he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Why? Well, he's 20 years older. His head would have been shaved. His face would have been shaved. And then they would put on, after they would completely shave, they would put on a fake goatee. So he has his fake goatee. Then he's wearing Egyptian clothes, and we find out in a minute he's bilingual, so he's speaking Egyptian. In fact, he's speaking to his brothers through an interpreter, so they don't even know he speaks Hebrew. That's what's going on here. Look here. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Now, that's true. Look at this. We are honest men. Not true. They've been lying for 20 years. Your servants have never been spies. Well, that's the truth. This whole, all of chapter 42, if you take notes in your Bible, you could write the awakening of the conscience. What Joseph is trying to do is awaken the conscience. One of the ways you awaken the conscience is you ask people, and this will certainly awaken your conscience, are you hiding something? And the answer for them was yes. You're a spy. You, well, you're hiding something. And then they say something, and this will happen sometimes. They'll say something. They lie. They say they're honest men. And it probably reminds them that they're not honest men. Like, have you ever had anyone ask you about your marriage? And you're like, oh, marriage is great. And as soon as you say it, you're like, my marriage is horrible. And I'm actually reminded of it. Because you'll feel weak when you say things that aren't true. And someone will say, do you struggle with that? Like, I, I know that people struggle. Oh, I don't struggle with that. And the moment you say it, you're having this internal dialogue. I really struggle with that. This phrase, honest men, will be used three times in this section. This is a key phrase. Look here, I'll show you this. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we are your servants. We're 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, look at this. The youngest is this day with our father. That's Benji. And one is no more. Interesting. They can't even talk about Joseph. Are there things in your life you can't talk about? Or that when you talk about them, you talk about them in very vague, very you know, nebulous, very ambiguous ways. Here. here. Here's how you know that you've dealt with something. You know that you've dealt with something when you can talk about it. You know that you are dealing with something when you can talk about it. 
So the saddest thing, like, you know, okay, so why don't people go to counseling? Well, there's less of a stigma today, but there could be a stigma. Well, what if they found out that, you know, whatever. Here's why a lot of people don't go to counseling. One or both of the spouses is not ready to really talk about it. Like, you've got to be able to say, you know, I've got this addiction and part of the healing. Like, the person who can talk about the sin in their life, with hopefully with remorse and repentance, but they can talk about it. It's like, dude, they are on the road to recovery. But so many marriages, it's like they can't even admit to themselves or each other the horrible condition of the marriage and the help they need. These guys haven't dealt with their 20-year past, so they still can't talk about it. So Joseph does this. Look here. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be, he tells them he's going to test them. By this you'll be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. I want him to come here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he's going to give them three tests. By the way, tests. I don't know if this will happen in your life. Tests tend to come in threes. Jesus was tested three times. Peter was tested three times. Joseph is tested three times. His first test is the test of sincerity or the test of authenticity. You heard it. He wants to know, are you who you say you are? And the other part of that is, and will you do what you say you will do? Okay, so this is, this is so obvious, but I, you know, part of my job is to state the obvious. But people are complex. So you are the most complex thing on planet Earth, and so am I, okay? And we're so complex. And then on top of that, we have men and women in the room and old people and young people and rich people and poor people and good backgrounds and bad backgrounds and different motivational drives and different desires and different goals. It's like, it's amazing that we can get along. And, and how do we get along? We get along by simplifying ourselves to our words. So like, you know, how, how do you become simple? You become simple by, in all your complexity, I can trust what you say. I don't even know where you are all the time. Like you're ever, you know, it's like, we don't see each other all the time, but I can trust what you say. So the moment that somebody breaks your trust, especially maybe more than once, and they said something and they didn't do this. This is what, you don't always say out loud, but this is what you feel. You're too complex. You're too complex for me. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're doing. And you're no longer a simple person. I can no longer simplify you to your word. So he's going back and he's saying, okay, I'm going to simplify you down to your word. Will you do what you say? Here's what it says. And he put them together in custody for three days. That's verse 17. So he talks to them about truth to awaken their conscience. And then he puts them in a place where they're going to be together and they're going to be able to think about this. See, the problem that some of us are not as aware of the sins and the needs in our spiritual life, is we're busy and we're distracted and we're watching, you know, season five of Breaking Bad again, okay? Instead of really thinking about anything deep. Okay, let me show you what happens next. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are, look at this, if you're honest men, pricking the conscience again, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry again for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words, there it is again, will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, look at this, they're together. They're speaking Hebrew. They don't know Joseph can hear. They're in front of Joseph, but they don't think he can understand. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. 
I want to talk about the conscience for a minute because the conscience is awakened. So, so listen to this. So there was these famous revivals in Scotland, and they had so many converts that they were trying to keep track of all the converts. Someone who genuinely became a Christian, they joined the church, they got baptized, their life had changed, they publicly identified with Christ, and they would, they would mark them out. Okay, we had this many converts. But then they created a whole other category, and the category was called the awakened. And the awakened, because that always they noticed that that always came first, and in my observation, that always comes first too. The conscience is awakened to a sense of personal guilt. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. It's something you should pay attention to before it gets worse. Men are the worst at this, right? Their wives are like, honey, you've had stomach issues for three years. Would you please go to the doctor? And the husband's like, I'm fine, you know? He's not fine. In, in the same way, guilt tells you that something's not right with your soul. The conscience is your first line of defense. After you go against your conscience, your next line of defense is your friends and family. The role of a friend and family is to basically say, you know what you should be doing. And if you catch someone early enough and they haven't seared their conscience, they're like, oh, you're right, thank, thank God for you. But if, but if their friends and family aren't there, the next line is the church. Most people don't even have that. And the church reinforces what the conscience is telling them. And then the final line is the state. It's when the police get involved. It's like, you don't want that. And they have to reinforce what you said no to with the church and the family and yourself. So the conscience being awakened is a huge part of this story. Look what happens here. And Reuben answered them, remember Joseph's listening, did I not tell you, did I not tell you not to sin? Uh-oh, someone used the S word. He actually talked about sin. To sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So this is the first time, guys, Joseph hears that his brother Reuben tried to save him. Have you ever been mad at somebody and maybe they didn't even do anything wrong? How long had Joseph been mad at each of the brothers and never needed to be mad at Reuben because Reuben didn't do anything wrong? But guys, he found out new information about how somebody tried to save him. And look at the effect it has on him. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. At hearing about Reuben, he weeps. He'll weep six times before the story's over. He weeps when he sees Benjamin for the second time. He'll weep. He weeps when he reveals himself to his brothers. He weeps when he sees his dad after 20 plus years. He weeps when his dad dies. And he weeps when he promises forgiveness to his brothers. When was the last time you cried? Some of you go, on the way to church. <laughs> um... Most of us don't cry. We're, you know, and, and you might want to ask, well, why, why, what makes people cry? And there's really two things at the end of the day, because, well, there's a million reasons you cry, but if you think about it, and most of us that probably cry on any kind of consistent basis might cry while we're watching a show or while we're watching a movie and we connect with it. And what happens is you always cry when you experience the brokenness of the world in a personal way. So if something really sad happens, someone loses, you know, somebody, a, a spouse or a child, and you watch it on the show and you connect with it, or somebody gets divorced, or 
there's a prodigal son and you hear about it and you feel the brokenness of the world and you respond and crying. The other, the other thing, sometimes you're like, yeah, but I cry when I'm happy. So it's like, well, you also cry when the brokenness of the world is restored. So if I got up here and I was like, hey guys, look, there's, I'm going to bring on stage a dad and a son who didn't get along for 10 years. And they've both recently come to Christ and they're, they're, they're reconciled and they're spending time together again. You'd cry as they walked on stage. It's just whenever we see the brokenness of the world, these are the two reasons Joseph cries, or we feel the restoration of that brokenness, we cry. So here Joseph is, tearing up. It says this, and he returned to them and he spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes, and Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack. And to give them provisions for the journey, this was done for them. So listen, if you're the one who's been sinned against, part of your healing, and it's only for you, is to do something kind and generous for the person who hurt you. Joseph gives them money back in their bags. They're going to find it in a second. As well as gave them grain, as well as gave them provisions. Now, they're never going to know. Well, they will at the very end, but they don't know right now that this is Joseph doing this. Because it wasn't about them, it was for Joseph. Part of the way that you're going to know that you're beginning to be reconciled to a person is you can do a good deed for that person without being resentful of them. And some of you guys, that's the beginning of the momentum in your marriage or the momentum in an old friendship. It's like, man, I'm going to just start to initiate kind, generous deeds. But look what happens. Then they loaded the donkeys with their grain and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw the money in the mouth of his sack. So imagine this is you. All of a sudden in your briefcase or in your backpack or in your purse, you find money. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now that seems like a strange response. Have you found $10,000 in your backpack? You know what you're going to say. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God is good <laughs> all the time. So, um, and the reason for this is, here's the thing. When you are under conviction, even the good things in your life you can't enjoy. And what the other thing is, what these, what these men are experiencing is the grace of God through a person. That's a lot of times how we experience the grace of God. And the grace of God, it feels wrong. And it's at one level, like, it feels wrong. I, I'm a sinner. Why would God be so gracious to me? Because grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Grace is giving you what you can't earn. We all live by grace. And if you really understand grace and you understand your own heart, grace will be shocking to you. These men are shocked by grace. Look what happens. So they go home. I won't read you the rest of the story here for chapter 42, but they go home and they tell Jacob everything, and they really do except they're still unwilling to confess about what happened with Joseph so many years ago. So here's what has to happen. Let's go to 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. So earlier they said, hey, listen, we got to bring Benjamin back. And, and then Joseph or Jacob says, no, you're not bringing Benjamin back. But the, 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 the famine has gotten so severe that this is what happens. Judah steps up. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us. It's like, dad, were you not listening? Saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. 
And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? And do you have another brother? What would we... What we told him was in answer to those questions. Could we in any way now know he what he would say? Bring your brother down. So here's what you have to understand about Judah. This is an important transition. Chapter 43 and 44 are key and crucial. Because until this chapter, Judah is a villain in the story. I mean, chapter 37, remember Judah is the one who steps up and says, guys, let's not kill him. Let's sell him and make money. Judah is the leader of the brothers. Because the leader, by the way, is always the person in the room with the clearest vision of what to do. So if you want to be the leader, you better be very clear about where you're headed, and you better learn how to articulate it. Because the leader could be the worst person in the room with the clearest vision of what to do, even if that vision is the wrong direction. That's exactly what happened to Judah. And then there's this really strange story in chapter 38, where Judah ends up, I know this is strange, if you don't know your Bible well, if you don't know the Bible, you're going to be surprised by this. Judah ends up having sex with a his daughter-in-law, who he thinks was a prostitute. And then she gets pregnant. And then he sees that she's pregnant. He's like, you need to die. And she's like, it's your kid. And he goes, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, that, that was Judah. And so the reason I'm telling you this is, is Judah is about to have a transformed life. And one of the things that you have to believe if you're going to ever reconcile with people is you have to believe people can change. Do not be cynical. We live in a very cynical time. People don't change. It's like, well... Maybe, apart from the grace of God, maybe they don't, but I cannot think, I, I, it's hard for me to think of a worse mindset to bring into a relationship than you can't change. I mean, I, I cannot think of something worse. It's like, that's, the death, of a, that's a de the death of a relationship. It's like, well, our marriage has always been a four out of 10 and you're who you are and I'm who, I'm who I am. And that's, another, that's a whole other thing. It's like, part of what you need to hear is you can change. You know, I know there's always a temptation in our life. It's like, well, let's just make peace with my sin. Let's learn how to manage it. Let me trade big sins for smaller sins. And then, then you get real dark sometimes. Well, my dad struggled with this, and so did my grandfather, and I'm just like them. And it's like, you, look, we believe in nature, nurture, and grace. Look, I've got three kids, okay? So I see nature. I'm like, okay, they look like me and my wife, and they have similar personality. I, get, I see all that. And then I see nurture. I'm like, okay, I'm seeing the effects of being a pastor's kid, both good and bad. But I, I, more than nature and nurture, I mean, this is, this is what Christians have to offer. It's like, no, there's something called grace. And not just the forgiving grace of God, but the transforming, empowering grace of God. So Judah changes. Look what he says. And Judah said, this is verse 8, to Israel's father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge for his safety. Okay, that's the exact, we see a transformed life by Judah because earlier, he wanted to sell his brother into slavery, and now he wants to protect his brother. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. So here's what happens. Finally, uh, Jacob says, fine, go. The famine's so severe, I, you, you say you're going to protect him, go. So they go, and they get to Joseph's house, and they talk to the steward, and they basically say, look, there was money in our sacks. And they, they just, they're trying to be unbelievably honest, their conscience is awake, and they're like, they're trying to do the right thing. So what does Joseph do? We're going to pick up the story where Joseph invites them into his home. This is trust earned and trust given. 
You're going to have to figure out how to incrementally and voluntarily invite someone back into your life if they've passed the test. So he invites them in. I want you to see this. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to the ground, and he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father's well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is, is this your younger, youngest brother of, of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. You, you know this. Sometimes you'll see a certain person, and it's what you, it's what you say to that certain person that makes you cry. He weeps so hard, he has to go to a private room. Then look at what verse 31 says. Then he washed his face and put his goatee back on. <laughs> and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the first... And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in amazement. So he had the brothers sit in birth order, you know. And he's like, how do they know that? How does he know that? But then look here. The second test. The first test was the test of authenticity. The second test is right here. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. This is the test of jealousy. Have you changed? Because you, last time, somebody was treated a little bit better than everybody else, or maybe a lot better than everybody else. You got unbelievably jealous. By the way, jealousy, that will, you know that, that will kill any relationship. You know you're jealous of somebody if you don't like hearing good news about them and you love hearing bad news about them. It's like, I don't want them to succeed. And when I see on Facebook that something, that they didn't get the job, I go, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that about you. So look what happens here. But this is the key. This is my favorite verse um, of all the verses we're reading today. And they drank and they were merry with him. So I'm not a film director, but if I was a film director, this would be the moment where I'd say, all right, guys, cut, no dialogue. Let's put the emotional music on. Let's, let's take the camera around the room slowly as everybody laughs with one another. Let's go to slow motion on this. I, I want to see them laughing. I want to see Joseph tell a joke and everybody laugh. I, I, I want to see them enjoying one another. Guys, this may be the most practical thing I'll share all day. How do you restore a broken relationship? You create new good memories together. That is so important. Because in every, and I, I pick on marriages because marriage is the, you know, the most, the closest relationship on earth, okay? And what happens in almost every marriage, at least for a point in that marriage, it could be year five, year 10, year 15, year 20, there's a point where one or both of the spouses feels like, man, we don't have many good memories. In fact, we have a lot of bad memories. In fact, because this is how, you're more sensitive to negative emotion than positive emotion, so we all are, and so it's like, you start thinking like, I don't know that we have any good memories. And you, you say things like, well, you know, you tried date night, but we, you know we don't do date night. We always just fight on date night. And you never plan it. And we did the 10 year, you remember the 10 year anniversary trip? We, we spent way too much money. We didn't have, we, you know, we fought the whole time we were there. It's like, okay, here's what you do. You talk about everything from the past. You have the massive heart funeral. 
heart funeral, you bury it. You say, we're not going to talk about that anymore. And we are going to fumble and mumble and stumble, and we are going to figure out how to create some new good memories together. And if you'll, be, if you'll both be committed to that, you'd be surprised how quickly it could happen. And you're looking back in a few months or a year or two, and you're going, oh, my goodness. And this is when the relationship changes. We now have more good memories than we do old bad memories. This is the first time maybe ever the 12 boys are enjoying one another. And they don't even know yet that it's Joseph. This was for Joseph. He needed to enjoy the brothers. Look here. Then the man, or sorry, then I'm in chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with, with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph had told him. So here's what happens. I won't read the whole story. They say, well, thank you so much. This is great. We're going to head back to Egypt, and uh, they take their sacks, and, but in Benjamin's sack is the silver cup, and so he's going to be framed and blamed for stealing. And so Joseph probably waits till they get about a mile or two down the road, and then he sends you know, his police you know, out to, they, they, they run the sirens, and they pull the camels over, okay? And, uh, and the camels are pulled over, and they, they have that dramatic, hey, the, king's, or the, the governor's cup has been taken, and everyone goes, it wasn't me. And he, they said, well, we're going to check every bag. And they said, well, whoever did it you know, is guilty and needs to go to prison or be killed. And so they say, well, deal. And, and so they start with the oldest and all the way down to the youngest, and it's very dramatic. It'd be a great movie scene, and the youngest son, Benjamin, has the cup. He's as shocked and surprised as anybody else is. They rip their clothes, and they head brokenhearted and devastated back to Egypt. And that's where we'll pick up. They head back to Joe's house. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know what a man like me, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He didn't practice divination. That was a pagan practice. He's playing with them. This is all part of the act to say, I knew because I have special powers that you stole this cup from me. And Judah said, and by the way, this is the longest speech by one person in the book of Genesis. It's going to be Judah's confession. Look at this. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Look, for first mention of God from Judah here. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, this is Joseph, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. See, the story is going to transition. And come back next week, because in the very beginning of chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself. But everything changes, and this is good to know, everything changes with the confession. We're not very good at confession. You know, if you say, if you want to talk about it, is a church gospel-centered, is a family gospel-centered, one of the questions is, is there confession in that home? Because it says, I'm a sinner. But confession, you know this because you've had to confess things before. Some of you need to confess something that you haven't confessed. And why, why is confession so hard? Because every confession says this to somebody, and usually somebody that they love. Every confession says this. There's something about me that you don't know, and it's not good. 
Confession is very hard on people. And you need to know that if somebody confesses something, just know this. It'll be very emotional moment. Just know that if somebody decides to confess something to you, they have thought about telling you for a long time. They probably got close a couple times and then chickened out. Judah says that your sin will ultimately find you out. We know that. In fact, here's, here's, here's like just a good litmus test for yourself. Because like, you so, one of the things we tell ourselves is, I have this under control. This isn't a big deal in my life, and it's not something I need to confess. Well, here's the test if you need to confess something. Have you almost got caught? He came home. She came home earlier than you thought. You go, oh, my God, I almost got caught. If you've almost got caught, you definitely need to confess. You do not have this under control. They come out, they confess. Look what he does here. And then Judah went up to him and said, I'm in verse 18, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his, own, of his old age. His brother, he finally says it. You know, it's like, say it out loud. His brother is dead. And he's alone, and he's left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. So what do you do if you're just, like, stuck in sin? You start telling the truth. That's the way out. Because it, there's three words for sin in the Bible. There's the word sin, which means I missed the mark. There's the word transgression, which means I've crossed the line. And then here's what you get after a while. You get the word iniquity. And people feel this. It's like, it means I'm twisted and I'm lost. And I don't, I, I've, I've had guys sit in my office before to go, I don't, I think I'm a, a pathological liar. You have to start telling the truth first to yourself. You have to stop saying things that you know aren't true. You have to stop lying. And so he's like, he just starts, Judah starts telling the truth and the healing begins. Look here. Now, there, therefore, I'm in verse 30. As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. This is amazing. Judah cares for his dad who doesn't really love him back. I mean, there's a lot of good things we could say about Jacob across his life, but he definitely was not a good father, especially to these 10 boys. And Judah has such a transformed life somehow, by the grace of God, that he's actually able to love the father who wounded him. And then it ends very dramatically. Look here. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Here's what he's saying. I'll be the substitute for Benjamin. Remember early on when Benjamin wouldn't come out uh, or wasn't there, and, and Joseph says, you need to go back and get Benjamin. He says, I'll keep Simeon. What was Simeon? Simeon was an involuntary substitute. <laughs> he did not want to be there. He'd much rather go back with the brothers. He doesn't want to be in jail. And here's Judah, and he says, I will be a voluntary substitute. And this is the last verse before Joseph reveals himself. Why? Because they pass the third test, the test of charity. The test of sincerity, the test of jealousy, and the test of charity. 
awe. Do you really love one another in such a way that you're willing to sacrifice? And as soon as I talk about, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time or been in church for any amount of time, as soon as I start talking about somebody voluntarily substituting themselves for somebody else, I hope you think about Jesus Christ, who substituted himself for us and died for our sins in our place. Because here's one of the lessons, the the, the hard lessons from this story of Joseph. Time does not cover sin. The cross of Christ does. I I saw this. Do you know that last year there was a 97-year-old woman convicted because they found out that she was a secretary to the Nazis. I went and looked at the pictures. It's very, it's very interesting to see a 97-year-old woman in court. And what does that communicate? Time does not cover things. If we find you 50 years later or 67 years later and we know you've done something, you need to pay for it. It's like, who, who can live under that with all the sin in our lives? It's like time does not cover sin. The cross of Christ does. Let me tell you what this is a story about. This is a story about people who are wounded, okay? Sin and suffering wounds us. Jacob was a wounded dad who wounded others, right? Hurt people, hurt people. Joseph's brothers were wounded. When you, when you sin, you sin against yourself. Joseph was wounded. And so part of what I want you to understand at Two Cities, this is a big deal. Some of you are wounded and you need more than forgiveness, not less than forgiveness, okay? The Bible talks about forgiveness is the main just heart of the gospel. You can be forgiven. Amazing. Some of you need to be forgiven and set free. Some of you need to be forgiven and you need to be healed. And the way that you're healed of wounds and they can one day just become a scar that you talk about is you have to admit I've got some wounds. And so we want to be a place of health, a place of hope, a place of healing. Guys, I started today talking about tests. Well, I've got a friend and he grew up and he had a very godly mom and Every time, you know, when he was a little boy, he'd talk to his mom about something he's going through and he'd have a struggle. And then he'd go to high school and someone picked on him and he talked to her about it. And then he went to college and he had his first girlfriend and it didn't work out. And then he had his first job. And he said, I'd always call my mom, not in a weird way, but I'd call my mom to get her advice. And he said, no matter what I was going through, she would always tell me the exact same thing, pass the test. I think that's a word for some of you. It's like, some of you just got a lot of money, pass the test. Some of you are struggling financially, pass the test. Some of you need to confess something, pass the test. Some of you need to forgive somebody, pass the test. And at the beginning of the year, when we have a bunch of freshmen who are entering college, college is a test, pass the test. We wanna help each other do it together, let's pray. Lord, we wanna pass the test. We know that ultimately you passed the test for us. You lived a sinless life, you died in our place, you rose victoriously, that is our hope. We thank you for the story of Judah and his honesty and his confession, Lord. We, we pray that we would be emotionally healthy Christians here. We pray that we would, I pray that the gospel would be so real and confession and repentance and forgiveness so tangible to people that we would see marriages reconciled and families restored and friendships united, Lord, so that we can glorify you and reach our city. We pray this in Jesus' name.